morning, folks, and welcome to our monthly podcast. Uh, I have uh, Bishop Barron with me this morning uh, to talk on uh, a different approach with uh, the situation of child abuse crises. And basically, uh, you, you graced us back in 2015 uh, with the Anglophone Conference and giving a talk at that time uh, from a scriptural perspective. In, in a nutshell, um, Bishop, is there anything you could share the role that scripture has uh, specifically with the crises of uh, this child abuse crisis? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me today. I'm delighted to be able to talk to you. And, and yes, I remember that conference very fondly. And I gave this paper on looking at the, the crisis from a scriptural standpoint. And my argument there was that we can and should look at it from a psychological and sociological and interpersonal you know, standpoint. But that finally, as, as biblical people, we should use the scriptures as our great you know, frame of reference. And I argued that the Bible has a lot to say about it. The Bible has a lot to say, obviously, about family, about sexuality, about children. But also it knows, in a very clear-eyed way, about uh, sexual abuse and sexual misconduct. So I went through a number of, uh, of passages, mostly in the Old Testament, where this issue is, is broached. And I think it, it, they do shed a great deal of light. Um, one of my favorites there is the story of uh, Eli, you know, the priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And uh, Hophni and Phinehas, we hear, have been abusing the people, both kind of financially, but also sexually. Mm -hmm. The people complain to Eli. They bring their concerns. Eli says some of the right things, but then does nothing. People keep complaining. He does nothing. And as a result, there's disaster upon Israel. So they're defeated by the Philistines. The uh, Ark of the Covenant is uh, taken. Hophni and Phinehas are killed in battle. And when Eli gets the news, he himself falls over dead. Now, the point there is, there's an awful lot of, um, of um, analogies to our own experience. So you've got, see, Hophni and Phinehas are both priests under the high priest, Eli. Priests behaving badly abusing the people, the people complain to their superior, the superior does nothing, the result is a disaster for Israel. Uh, that's a pretty close analogy, I think, to our own time. So I use that as a way in to, to draw some conclusions about um, uh, the church, about God, mm -hmm. about how the Lord is always cleansing and purifying his church, etc. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was one of the, the ways mm -hmm. in. I think part of uh, the importance here is that you had these victims, alleged victims, who were saying something. Yeah. And interestingly, the those who were in charge possibly heard, but did nothing. Did nothing. Right. Right. And so we see we see the same thing too, not just with the church. I, I keep thinking as well with the Me Too movements and yep. all of the uh, outcry now with the abuse that's taking place, yeah. and not just sexual abuse. I mean, abuse in general. Abuse of power, really. Correct. Many Correct. Cases. So, uh, scripturally, though, with what we're talking about, you know, we, we hear of God as a loving God and a forgiving God. And what, what's, the, what's the take in this, especially for a victim who possibly may, may be hearing this podcast, uh, of, of God's uh, um, role in all of this, especially with the abuse? Yeah, I'd say a couple things. Uh, maybe one a little more Old Testament, one a little more New Testament. Uh, is God also a God of, of justice? Yes. Does God... Uh, simply remain indifferent to sin? No. In fact, God's role is always one of cleansing and purifying. 
And we see it, I think, in the case of, of Hophni and Phineas. We see it in other stories in the Old Testament that God does not just um, stand at a distance, but addresses this problem. You know, um, has the church been going through the past 20 years a kind of cleansing process? Seems pretty clear to me, you know. Often at the hands of our enemies, if you want. So people in the culture that, you know, that hate religion or hate the church. Well, okay, the Israelites were handed over to the Philistines, who were the instrument of God's justice. So that's real. That's a biblical idea. And I think God does uh, cleanse and purify his, uh, his people. Now, a little more New Testament perspective. Um, what do we see in the cross of Jesus especially? But God's great identification with victims. So Jesus on the cross, talk about the ultimate innocent victim. Someone who is deeply abused, misused, unfairly uh, attacked, etc. The innocent victim. The point is that God identifies so thoroughly with this victim that we say, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took the form of a slave. And so we see on the cross of Jesus that infinite compassion of God, God's solidarity with the victim, God's identification with the innocent victim. So I think someone who has been the victim of, of sexual abuse, a contemplation of the cross of Jesus is a great place to start mm -hmm. to get a sense of, of the forgiveness and compassion of God. You know? mm -hmm. we, we've just uh, uh, celebrated the birth of the church, the Feast, Pentecost, of, yeah. Feast of Pentecost. And the prayer of that, you know, that the Holy Spirit renew us, uh, the Holy Spirit breathe upon us. Um, wh how have you seen church renewed, tra church transformed since, say, your time from being yeah. bishop and, and even prior to perhaps when you were in seminary? And, oh, gosh, and, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, yeah. discerning and in the role in the process of, of becoming a priest. Yeah, that's a good question. And you're right, that image is great from, from Pentecost, oh, from the beautiful. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, wind and fire, you know. So first of all, wind and fire can be pretty destructive. In fact, just a few weeks ago, up in these hills right near my house, we had the terrible Thomas fire that came through and, and you know, destroyed a thousand homes. We saw that terrible flood, you know, that came through. Uh, storms and fire, I know about that. Well, that's an image for the Holy Spirit. And part of that is, I think, a cleansing move. Um, has that happened in my lifetime? You bet. You know, I, I go back to the, most of my priesthood, I've been a priest for 32 years now, and, and the first really inklings of the scandals in Chicago, my home diocese, were in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. So within five years of my ordination, this, this crisis has been upon the church. And I've watched, and I mean this very positively, I think God, working through secondary causes, affecting a great purification of his church. Look at the, the Dallas Accords. You know them very well from 2002 sure. when the church you know, put these protocols in place. And, you know, were those uh, painful for some people in the church? Yeah, sure. They call for a lot of change, a lot of, um, you know, rearrangement. And yeah, yeah, but there's the wind and the fire of the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, so there's that side of it. They call it the, the more chastening side. And then there's the whole, as you say correctly, the renewing side. The church renew the spirit renewing his church. I think all these things that we've done over the past many years, you've been intimately involved in supervising all of that. That's a sign of the Holy Spirit. Thank God, you mm -hmm. know, who does not abandon his church. See, I, I think the biblical take 
we're not deists. You know, biblical people don't think God is up there, out there, someplace. You know, distant, remove. No, God's a God's an actor. God is a person who acts, mm-hmm. and I think we can see it very clearly in in cleansing, purifying, renewing the church these last twenty some years. Mm-hmm. And man, if you doubt that's a painful process, first of all, look in the Bible. Secondly, just remember the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Anyone involved with the church knows how painful that process has been. So that's how I look at it, looking at it through biblical eyes. It's interesting, though, with, with, uh, with change uh, or with growth, particularly growth, uh, it does require change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in many cases, painful. Yep. Painful change. What about the what about you, you mentioned God as actor mm-hmm. and helping to to create and to, to cause movement and such? What about the role of evil? Uh, where where does the devil play, you know, a part in all of this scripturally as well? Yeah. You know, I I, yeah. I I think of a number of, of stories in the New Testament, but also in Old Testament as well. But sure. any thoughts on? Yeah, you know, um, I was true in your experience. Certainly, it wasn't mine when I was coming of age. The devil was seen more as a symbolic sort of figure, you know, a literary device to, to be you know, describing the evil in the world. But for me, I've said this many times, the, the, the clergy sex abuse scandal reaffirmed my belief in, in the personal devil. And I say that because it was such a masterpiece of wickedness. You know, think of, of this scandal and all of its ramifications mm-hmm. and how it undermined the church in almost every way. It, it was a masterpiece of, of uh, wicked invention, you know? Mm-hmm. And that did, it reaffirmed my sense of, of, a, of an evil person, an evil mind mm-hmm. that's behind some of this. Um, you know, the Bible knows about personal sin. It knows about collective and institutional sin. And, and we've been addressing both of those in this scandal. But the Bible knows a third level too, which is behind both of those. And that's this deeply spiritual dysfunction. I think all three are evident, and all three are at play. You know, um, are we involved in a spiritual warfare? Yeah. No, it's not like a Manichaean struggle, as though God's got this co-equal opponent. You know, no, the devil's a creature, and under God's aegis and within God's providence, all those true things. Nevertheless, yeah, I think the language of a of spiritual warfare is is appropriate, which is why addressing this thing. Uh, yes, thank God, we're addressing it legally, we're addressing it psychologically, we're addressing it institutionally, sociologically, absolutely. But underneath, behind all those, is a spiritual address. There has to be a spiritual address. We're dealing with sin. You know, when push comes absolutely to shove, we're talking about sin. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Mm -hmm. a spiritual failure, Mm -hmm. moral failure. And so the thing has to be engaged at that level. I've often heard from parishioners that made comment that uh, because of this crisis, uh, they they don't go to mass as often, or in some cases, they've completely left. Mm-hmm. Uh, as chair of the evangelization, uh, the committee yeah. on evangelization, uh, what do you have to say with that? Uh, you know, in terms of that, uh, the faithful who, prior to this uh, crisis, for all intent and purposes, perhaps were practicing Catholics. Mm-hmm. And then because of this crisis have since left the church. Yep. And I've also heard this from young people make this comment. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, I do think about this, wrestle with it, read the statistics on it. 
I think for those who, who passed through the crisis, yes, that's true. They were adversely affected. And it's simply the, the flip side of you know, how these Christians love one another. So in the early days of the church, what drew people to the church was this extraordinary way that Christians loved one another and even loved their, their enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what drew people in. So when the church manifests itself as a place where, where people are, are abusing or misusing each other, that has an anti-evangelical effect, no question. Did it drive people away? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I get that, and I, I weep over it. I, I mean, I think it's, it's one of the great tragedies of this whole thing. The, my next observation is this. As you read the studies, and I read a lot of them, of the rising generation. So these are young kids, let's say 16 through 25, you know. And, and I've talked a lot about the nuns, right? The N-O-N-E-S, right. those who have no religion in this group. I'll say this. They give a lot of reasons why they're abandoning religion. The sex abuse thing, frankly, is not given often as a, as a significant reason. It's there in the surveys, but often not at the top. The top, you'll find things like science refutes religion. Religion is irrational. You will hear, for example, the church's sexual teaching especially on, on gays and on transgender, that will come up a lot. But frankly, the, the uh, clergy sex abuse scandal among the really young kids is not often listed as a major reason. Now, part of that could just be it's a question of, of history and time, that, that for them it's more of an historical uh, you know, reality. Um, but the first part remains the case, that sure. yes, indeed, it had a deeply anti-evangelical effect. And... Again, part of, of the wicked genius of this thing is that it had that uh, repulsive quality. Sure. Um, so, your, your experience with being here in Southern California, yeah. and it's a large Hispanic population. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a melting pot. For, you know, it really is. You yeah. See a lot of cultures over here. Yeah. But do you notice differences, particularly with the cultures and how they approach their their church, how they live out their faith? You know, where. Where does scripture, where is, where is that in terms of their daily living? Do you notice differences culturally? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's wonderful out here, of course, for that very reason, uh, especially among the Hispanics, but also the Asians, a lot of Asians in this part of the country. And um, you see the faith being lived, first of all, in a very vibrant way. If you want to see the, the greatest numbers of people in my region, you go to Oxnard, where the, a lot of the Hispanic parishes are. You go to a place like Santa Maria, you know, up north where I am now. And that's when you see a lot of people at church and you see a lot of kids and you see the abuelos and the abuelas and, you know, that's where the faith is vibrant. Or I'd say among the, the Asians, especially the Filipinos. Sure. Um, now, I, I'm not, I don't want to badmouth my own people, the Anglo people, <laughs> but you'll see the faith, I would say, you know, more obviously and vibrantly lived in those other populations. Um, and if I were to venture a guess, I would say among the Asians and Hispanics, there is probably a more consistently biblical um, or supernatural take on things. The supernatural element of religion, I think, is more clearly and immediately evident. Um, you know, the, and the religion contains both of those. You know, grace builds on nature, we say. And so part of the religious to, uh, concern is, you know, the political, the economic, and the social and all that. But the supernatural dimension, I think you might see a bit more readily in the Hispanic and the Asian populations. Um, so yeah, I've noticed those differences, and I, I, I love going to those parishes. I've noticed uh, from last week's readings, uh, I had some folks uh, approach me after Mass. They were so taken by the reading, 
you know, you are my people, I am your God. And that sense of community that yeah. they have, I've noticed when, yeah. when crises occur, and, and not, you know, not just, say, for example, child abuse crises, yeah. etc. Uh, I've often seen communities rally together and really try to provide support. Yep. Uh, also for the priest, I've seen that where, in some cases, it's as though there's a denial for some of the for some of the folks to believe. Oh no no no, Father, see there, there's no way he could yeah, do yeah, that. Right. You know, and so uh, it's a very rich, if you will, um, participation in the faith and understanding in the faith. And the, and the reality of the family and their culture that takes place. And I see this, you know, taking place, you know, not just culturally, though, but in parish communities. Yeah. But the key, I think, that I, I've been having to, to, uh, to think about is that the, the idea of just being able to open up at first and to, to be able to talk about this yeah. and bring it out to the open. Yeah. Uh, any experiences on this end with crises that have come forward and the ability to be able to share that? For example, when... When uh, at mass, th- during homilies, opportunities to be able to share, we realize the majority of abuse that's taking place isn't necessarily now with clergy, yeah. uh, but it's with family members, it's with relatives, it's with coaches, it's with teachers. It's, yeah. uh, yes, and uh, you're raising a huge and very important issue, but I think that's part of the movement of grace. So we've talked a lot about the, the wicked you know, <laughs> work of, of, the, of the evil one, but I also think you know, it's God's grace which triumphs over everything else. God's grace, which is operative in the church. And that's one of the ways. Um, and maybe in God's providence, the church was the place where this thing really came out publicly. And we were compelled to deal with it. You know? And now you see the Me Too movement and all that business. Well, well what, what is that? But you know, people uh, abusing power, people engaging in sexual abuse of those who are, who are vulnerable, etc., well, the very things that we learned, the lessons that we've taken in, can we share with the wider culture now? Uh, can we, as you say, talk about this thing more freely? Mm-hmm. Can we be more articulate about it at, at these various levels, psychological level, interpersonal level, families, and so on? And maybe that's some, some of the kind of sacrificial role the church is playing, you know, that what happened with us is going to benefit maybe the wider society or, or allow us at least to acknowledge it, talk about it mm-hmm. more clearly. So I think that's a sign of grace. I really do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll tell you that, speaking of grace, I'm in the middle of confirmation season, really toward the end of it now. So almost every night I'm out of the parish. It's just, to me, a beautiful miracle of grace that, you know, you do a confirmation and you're dealing with, out here in L.A., the kids are about 14, 15 when we confirm them. But there they are, and with their families and their younger brothers and sisters and cousins and then the servers. And last night we had about eight servers, you know, helping me out. But God bless the people of God who have not allowed this scandal to alienate themselves completely from the faith. That that still they come and still the the kids go through our programs and so on. And I just, I thought of it last night actually, as I'm surrounded by all these young kids and families, you know. Um, we we messed up in a remarkable way, you know, and uh, we've had to pay a huge price for it. But but yet God is is faithful, you know, and and God's grace triumphs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do see that, you know, despite all of our all of our sin and, and our dysfunction, but the, the grace triumphs. I think that's a wonderful, you know. There, but by the grace of God, go I. Yeah, I yeah. agree.
Now, in your earlier career, you were in Mundelein. Yeah. How has the seminary changed? Yeah, a lot, I would say. You're right. I, I was a teacher for a long time, uh, taught theology. Uh, so I was involved in formation uh, of these guys. And then my last three years there, I was rector. Sure. So I was involved in, in every uh, admission. You know, I read every file of the kid that was applying. You know, the most obvious way is, uh, you know this very well, the, the background checks that we do on students. I mean, I can assure people from the standpoint of a seminary rector, um, these, these candidates are looked at, I think they're scrutinized more than, than FBI candidates, <laughs> you know. So we do, and, and correctly, thank God, we do. We, we do all kinds of background checks on them. I'd say also that they are well aware of all the protocols. I mean, coming up out of Dallas 2002 and afterwards, um, they, of course, all have to go through the, you know, the virtuous training and all sure. the different levels. So I would say these guys, certainly from an institutional standpoint, are, are screened, are informed. Uh, they, they know the program. I'd also say this, though, that you know, creating a culture of child protection, a culture of care for uh, young kids, is this really important part of seminary formation. And I'll make a last comment. When I was rector, I addressed the community a lot. And... Um, I played a lot with the master image of uh, a father. Mm-hmm. See, look, you guys are all going to be called father. And I got this from Cardinal George, who was a, kind of a mentor to me. Uh, the priest is not a bachelor. I kept saying that. You're not, you're not an unmarried man. You're a married man with kids. In other words, you're, you're married to the church, and you have spiritual children. And, and the, the first task of a father is to protect his kids, you know? So that, I kept harping on that idea. That's why this thing has been so outrageous when, when those who are, who are by ordination and by grace meant to protect their children, abuse their children. That was the, the horror of it, you know? But I, I kept stressing that, is, is the fatherhood of priests. Um, and you were, you know, as a bishop, I don't have anything, you, you were the, the bishop's ring, which is a sign of your, your wedded to your people, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I try to bring that in very strongly, but I, I'd say to anyone listening, you know, trust me, the, the institutional guards are in place, and, and the young people applying to seminaries are very much conditioned by all that. Article 17 does talk about ongoing formation that needs to take place, yeah. Article 17 of the Charter. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, I, I had heard from a bishop, um, and, and, and he had... He was wondering if this was even taking place for the clergy, this ongoing formation in terms of uh, human formation, sexuality, the, the crises in general. But this bishop made a comment that uh, he was approached by a mom who, who said that uh, she would not allow her children to become altar servers hmm. uh, for the parish because not once has she heard her parish priest talk about the crises. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... Back to what we were talking about, I think yeah. this grace that you're talking about uh, is very much if, if we are able to just allow the Spirit to just ooze into us mm-hmm. and give us the courage to be able to speak out. And I have every a- a- admiration for those survivor victims who do come yeah. forward yeah. And, and who do share the story and speak out. And in fact, we are working with a number of them closely to help guide our role. Uh, I want to go back to, like, I I remember you giving a talk about signs and symbols. And you gave this one talk about the the symbol of the Tao. 
Oh yeah, uh, the yeah. marking on the door, and and if the angel of death came across and saw that mark, they, that family would be would be relieved. What what signs or symbols can church give to our survivor victims that that uh, that all of this is hopefully helping church to become healthier, holier? Yeah, yeah. And you reference that story from uh, it's from the prophet Ezekiel chapter nine, and Ezekiel has this grand vision. It's like an eschatological vision of this destroying force that comes to Jerusalem. Um, but prior to that, this figure goes out and, and you're right, marks the foreheads of certain people with this, the last um, letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the, the Tau. And, um, and they're the ones who were spared. And upon that basis, the Lord kind of rebuilds his people. And, you know, it's important not to literalize the images though, you know, sure. God's going to send an army to slaughter people. But it's that biblical idea of the, the cleansing and purifying the Lord does. But this remnant remains, right? This remnant, those who are marked with this sign. And upon that basis, the Lord rebuilds. The church fathers loved it because the Tao reminded them of the cross. And furthermore, the cross on the forehead, I, I marked it on every kid I, I confirmed last night, mm -hmm. but every baptized person is marked with the sign of the cross. And so that's the sign of God's holy people. And and the task of God's holy people is to sanctify the world. Now do Vatican II, is to go forth. So remember, Francis, Pope Francis, don't turn inward. We don't, we're not self-referential. The church is meant to go out. Mm -hmm. So those marked with the sign of the cross are meant to go out and to, and to build this, this kingdom of God, you know. That's the image, you know. And so whenever the church goes through a crisis, and, and this has been the worst in our history, certainly as Americans, the worst crisis in American church history has been the one we've been passing through. All right, what's the sign of grace? Is a lot of people marked with the sign of the cross, the baptized, to go forth and, and remake, you know, mm -hmm. is to, to be the remnant upon which God rebuilds. So that's the, that's the sign of hope. It's our own baptism. All of us together, you know, it's, it shouldn't be a, a us-against-them proposition, good guys, bad guys, but now all of us, Clergy, laity, you know, men, women, working together, baptized members of Christ's body to build up, you know, the, the church and to build up the world. That's our task. Mm -hmm. That to me is the sign of hope. Our own baptism, to reclaim our own baptism and that we're marked with that sacred sign. I think the sacraments in general are yeah. signs of hope. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, the role that the sacraments have in our everyday, you know, living. Absolutely. You know, one thing I'd say... To that point, about especially about uh, victims and survivors, um, and especially you would reference this. Some people were so hurt and so abused that they don't even want to, you know, go back to church. Um, blessed Sacrament adoration, simply being in the presence of of the Lord in His Eucharistic species, I think has an enormous healing uh, power. It's not calling you to really do anything. It's not a ritual you're involved in. You don't have to respond. Simply, you know, he looks at me, I look at him, as, as uh, the Curie Bar said. You know, what, what are you doing when you're in adoration? He looks at me, I look at him. Mm -hmm. And what are you looking at? You're looking at the Lord who went all the way into God forsakenness, you know, became this victim on the cross of, of deep injustice. It's God's identification with those who suffer. And I think when someone simply spends time in the presence of the blessed sacrament, that has a huge 
uh, transforming effect. Sure. So even someone that has a hard time maybe going back to mass or a hard time dealing with priests and all that, I might recommend that. that the simple contemplative prayer before the Blessed Sacrament can have a real healing power. And I've heard from victims who can't even go into church. Yeah. So, for example, when they do have the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, it's usually in a chapel yeah. or in a church. The role of Mary, our mother, yeah. as nurturer and mother, mom. And I heard from the survivor victor, victim who mm. stated simply holding the rosary, not, not even praying it. Yeah, just holding it. Holding the rosary gave him such comfort uh, that he knew he would be able to weather this. Yeah. Oh, I get it. I get it. Um, I pray the rosary every morning in my chapel here. And it was one of the spiritual teachers now, who was it, that said even like holding the rosary is like holding the hand of Mary. Mm. The risk of sounding a little overly pious, but I get that. I get that. There's something that tactile about the rosary. But even yeah, before the, the explicit prayer, just holding it. Right is like being in contact with the Blessed Mother. And right, as, as we're the day after the, the, our first celebration of Mary, Mother of the Church. Right. But that's it. You know, she's the Madrecita of the, of the Church and caring for her suffering children. Correct. Absolutely. And, and this victim told me that when he would look at the Pieta yeah. and to see the loving and hurt uh, expression of the mother, yeah. you know, holding her son, he would often imagine that that's how he was being held as yeah. well, you know. So I'm very grateful to have met this individual who has just uh, enriched yeah. my spirituality, my faith as well. Um, but he mentioned something that I'd like to bring to another topic, yeah. the role of justice, mm -hmm. mercy. And, and from a scriptural perspective, that was one thing he was still yeah. very much struggling with, you know. So, yes, this, this happened when he was young, and it's in the past, he's dealing with it, whatever. But he still holds this anger from time to time what what where's the justice in this uh, how does god show his mercy on all of this yeah it's and you're right it's an age-old theological dilemma you know uh is god just yes and and we we shouldn't negate that you shouldn't say oh you know no god is mercy 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 and no justice no i mean god is is one and so all of god's attributes really come together they're they're all it's like it's like white light that gets uh, split by the by the prism into different colors. So we say, oh, there's God's justice, or there's God's mercy, but th they're really all the same, right? They're all expressions of the divine love. And here's what I mean. God's justice is not um, something arbitrary or something cruel. God's justice is a passion to set things right. Well, that's, that's a face of love, right? Love is willing the good of the other. So when things go off in God's uh, creation, he's not content to stay at a distance. But it's a passion to set things right. In the Bible, that justice is often expressed metaphorically as God's anger, right? So God doesn't pass in and out of emotional states. We shouldn't think of that like he's a dysfunctional father, you know. His anger is a metaphor for his justice. His justice, the passion to set things right, is a face of his love. So that's why it, it all comes together, mm -hmm. you know. So I, I would say to someone who's, who's been victimized and feels correctly that a great injustice was done, yeah, call upon the God who sets things right. As we've been saying now, there is plenty of evidence the last 20 or so years of God's, I'll put it in biblical language, God's avenging, avenging justice expressing itself. Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And does furthermore, a victim, a, a survivor, 
have a legitimate claim in justice to say, this thing needs to be set right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank God. Come forward with courage and, and to name the, you know, name the pain. So I, I totally affirm all that. But see, don't, don't set the mercy of God against the justice of God. They're, they're really the same thing. God's mercy is God's tender compassion for those who suffer. Okay, it's just another face of his love, right? Uh, so they're, they're, they're both at play, always. That's beautiful. Um, any last words, if, the, if a victim again or survivor is listening to this, uh, hmm. with, with, with trends internationally, with the way things are moving, uh, you know, with your role as bishop, with uh, any thoughts, final thoughts? It's the hardest question in some ways. You might say, um, Jesus, uh, at the risk of being over, overly simplistic. And, and as a Catholic, knowing that you can't really separate Jesus from his church, but maybe for someone who really is struggling with the church because of, of all kinds of things, Jesus. Jesus is, is the incarnation of God's justice, the incarnation of God's love especially Jesus crucified, Jesus the innocent victim, with whom God utterly identifies. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is friend. Jesus is uh, the one to whom you turn. Um, even if you're, you've had it with you know, priests and bishops and you're mad at the institutional church, and I mean, I get it. I get it. Jesus. Come back to him. Jesus the crucified Christ, um, cling to him, I guess would be my, my last word, knowing fully well how inadequate anything I say would be. But I feel pretty confident as, as a bishop saying Jesus is, is my last word to you. Beautiful. We've been listening and, and talking uh, today with Bishop Robert Barron. My name is Deacon Bernie Nohadera. For more information on these podcasts, please go to your website at www.usccb.org, Child and Youth Protection. And for those of you who are listening, if you know of someone who's been abused or if you're being abused, uh, please call the police. Um, also, every diocese has a victim assistance coordinator. Bishops are willing to listen. We have resources to be able to provide help and assistance, and at the very least, to be able to listen and hear and journey with you. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be with you shortly again next month. We do these podcasts. God bless and take care. Mm-hmm.